This is Slack and Slash Productions. Bringing you an extra special bonus Strawcast, a fast cast. Hi, Scott the DM here, and this week instead of delivering a Strawcast or any other funky fun fast casts or bonuses, uh, I have to talk about something serious. Uh, This week would be Canada Day here in the country called Canada. Uh, You may have heard on the news that there are some people calling for uh, cancellation of this national holiday, uh, or at least the celebrations that usually occur. And that's because a lot of Canadians are feeling shame right now about their national identity, uh, specifically white Canadians Uh, coming to grips with a legacy, a history uh, of cruelty and racism, uh, discrimination, even genocide. So I want to talk about that today, and uh, I think that it's important to state some of the facts because some of the listeners out there may not know them, may not even know what's going on in Canada right now, uh, and it's good to learn new things. Uh, But after I talk about the history and some of the ongoing controversy, uh, I'd like to talk about how this applies to our hobby. So I'll talk a little bit about how we can handle race and colonialism a little bit better in our D&D games as we move forward. So what is all the fuss about? Well, we have recently been finding mass graves uh, at sites of former residential schools. Um, There were uh, 215 remains found near a residential school in British Columbia, and more recently, 751 unmarked graves in Saskatchewan. These are the graves of children, uh, Aboriginal or First Nations children, and they were taken originally from their homes and their families and sent to these compulsory boarding schools. They're called residential schools. Um, There were over 130 of them in Canada. Uh, They were operated between 1863 and some of them closed as late as 1998. So within living memory, we still had these compulsory, these mandatory boarding schools. They were funded by the Canadian government. Um, They were operated on a daily basis um, by members of churches, mostly the the Roman Catholic Church. About 70% of them were Roman Catholic, because that was one of the dominant religions in uh, Canada for the time I mentioned. And so altogether, over the span of this uh, more than 100 years, um, something like 150,000 children were taken forcibly from their homes and sent to live in terrible conditions. Um, they were the, the, the practice here, the reason for doing this, was to enculturate the young First Nations people, uh, which is to say to remove their cultures and replace that with more European sensibilities. So they were often given new names. Um, they were punished for speaking their own languages, their indigenous languages. They were punished for cultural practices that they grew up with. 
Um, and above and beyond that, they were reportedly subjected to horrifying physical and sexual abuse in these residential schools. Um, not as a means of enculturating them, but because the people who were supervising them tended to think of these First Nations children as something less than human. Altogether, it's estimated that about 6,000 children died during their stay at residential schools, mostly due to the squalor of the conditions, disease or mistreatment. They lived in terrible, underheated uh, homes, and they were treated badly all the time. And as we're learning now, uh, when these children died, they were often placed in unmarked graves. There was no ceremony, no respect for their lives, for their souls, they were meant to be forgotten. If any of this starts to sound a little bit like the concentration camps that you read about in the history of World War II, uh, you're not far off. Um, there was a commission, uh, uh, a research and reporting process here in Canada in 2008 called the Commission for Truth and Reconciliation. And one of their conclusions was that all of this, the residential schools, along with a lot of other enshrined and legal cultural practices, they were all part of what they called a cultural genocide. So that genocide is just as punitive as the literal genocide that the Nazis practiced on Jewish people and others. Um, in fact, uh, there was recently a, a book published by historian Alexander de Schoer, uh, 2017, I think, uh, that claimed that Adolf Hitler was inspired by Canadian residential school systems when designing the Nazi concentration camps. So there's possibly a direct lineage between our cultural genocide and the Nazis' genocide. I also think that a lot of the modern stereotypes about what are called, in this case, Indians, although they generally prefer to be referred to as First Nations or indigenous peoples, a lot of the stereotypes around them uh, came through the effects of generations of trauma and interrupted cultural practices. So, you know, unfortunately, these stereotypes include uh, alcoholism and drug abuse, and that's a very understandable course of action when you have been traumatized, abused, humiliated, made to feel like something less than human. There's also an attitude amongst conservative white Canadians that First Nations people uh, don't mind living in squalid conditions. They prefer to live on the reserves, many of which, over 100 of which in Canada, don't have access to clean water on a regular basis. Uh, I can't believe that they're fine with that, but it's entirely possible that we have convinced them, that is, Europeans have convinced First Nations people to internalize this attitude that they deserve no better than squalid conditions. And finally, there's the idea of the vanishing Indian. Uh, the principal, Thomas King, writes about this a lot, um, that we were trying to save the Indians from themselves by teaching them to act and be more European. Um, at the time when these residential schools were first formed, the general belief amongst colonizers and settlers was that the Indian way of life was moribund, 
that even if we weren't around as colonizers, that they were simply going to die out because they didn't have the tools they needed to survive, that is, European tools. Um, this is hogwash. Uh, indigenous peoples survived just fine in North, Central, and South America for tens of thousands of years, possibly a lot longer, according to some archaeological finds. So they didn't need to be taught how to survive. Um, this was a convenience for us, for Europeans and settlers, because that meant that we could take the land that they usually used for hunting, uh, for uh, their nomadic lifestyles, and turn it into agricultural land or extract other resources from them. I won't go into resource extraction and colonialism too much today, but I think it's ironic and sad that we have constructed this stereotype of the vanishing Indian and then cast ourselves as essentially white saviors coming in to do what they cannot do themselves and prepare them for a bright white future. How is any of this relevant to D&D? Well, if you think about the tropes that have been part of Dungeons & Dragons since the earliest days, since the first published modules at least, you're going to see a lot of lost civilizations, quote-unquote lost civilizations. You're going to see a lot of ancient lore. You're going to see the remnants and the relics of cultures that died out for maybe unknown reasons. The vanishing indigenous cultures are often all the way vanished in D&D settings, and it's often the job of the PCs to uncover that lore and sometimes use it for the purposes of good, or occasionally to prevent ancient magic from resurfacing and terrorizing the world. So these lost civilizations might be good, they might be evil, but think most importantly, they are gone. They are extinct. And that, as I said, comes from our idea of the vanishing Indian. When indigenous people do appear in D&D, they are often savages. Uh, there's a class called barbarian, so we have a, a built-in assumption that D&D characters or NPCs who don't live in, you know, the city of Greyhawk or Waterdeep, they live out in the wild as barbarians. And that word has a lot of cultural baggage. Now, sometimes we go even further with D&D plots. Sometimes the villains of these stories are themselves invaders, which you think would frame the PCs as indigenous, basically, as First Nations, but usually when there are invaders, say hordes and hordes of orcs swarming over the, the mountainside coming for you, the D&D &D appropriate thing to do is to get in the keep. And this is something called a garrison mentality, the idea that you're only safe if you're inside your castle. Of course, we get this from European history to some extent, but it was very much the case for white settlers in parts of the United States and definitely throughout Canada. You were only safe in your keep, in your garrison, in your fort. Not because you were going to get attacked by orcs or even First Nations. Most of the First Nations encounters with white settlers throughout Canada were initially peaceful. Not all of them, but a great many of them. No, I think that whites 
uh, settlers were afraid of leaving their forts because nature is dangerous, especially Canadian nature in winter. But at any point, nature is dangerous unless you know how to survive in it. And the settlers really didn't. <laughs> the First Nations did, of course. They'd been surviving in this nature for millennia. Uh, but that's not how the settlers saw it. So what you get in D&D is this attitude that if you're being invaded, you have to hide in your castle or your keep, the keep on the borderlands. And then you make these forays out and you fight your enemy. I'm not saying that this is the universal way of playing D&D, but I think you'll look if you look at published modules, campaigns, look at some of the games that you yourself have played, you'll probably see some of these tropes pop up, um, maybe repeatedly. And I think that all of these are uh, the effects, the consequences of mostly white North American players and RPG writers crafting stories that cast them, settlers or their families, their histories, as the heroes. And that means that indigenous people are either the villains or they're forgotten about. They are eclipsed, erased. Now, there is, I think, underneath all that, a more fundamental problem with race in fantasy role-playing games. So I want to talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, the word race is complicated. In D&D, we use it to mean species. So humans are one race, and elves are a different race, and orcs are yet another race. That makes sense, right? They're all different species. And we'd like to believe that there are no implications about race the way we use it in the real world. That race in the real world does not correspond to race in D&D. But I don't think that's entirely true. For one thing, we have examples right from the beginning of D&D of half-breeds. We have half-elves and half-orcs. That implies a certain uniformity of DNA, the ability to crossbreed. And there's no information that I know of to suggest that half-breeds, half-elves, half-orcs, are sterile, like a mule would be. So now we have to wonder if maybe elves, humans, and orcs are all somehow the same species, and that maybe in this case race does mean the same thing that it means in the real world. I'm diving deep into this in a way that most players don't do. And even if you do end up in this kind of conversation, it's very easy to hand wave all of this stuff away by saying, well, it's different in D&D because magic, or it's different in D&D because the gods. But I believe there's still the message underneath that that some races are genetically evil, for lack of a better term, or at least less civilized than others. I think that idea is baked right into the premise of the game. And there are certainly ways to play around that. Some DMs like to subvert some of those tropes and make, for example, make orcs very civilized indeed, you know, and, and maybe the elves aren't quite as hoity-toity as we thought they were. But there's still this almost systematic, this mechanical problem about how you handle race. In early editions of D&D, there were really no examples of what we think of as race. It was assumed that all the human PCs were white. You see that reflected in the artwork. It was assumed that all the elves were white, except the drow. Hmm, the drow are evil. Interesting. So, right at the heart of D&D, this implication that white is good and other colors are at least suspect and maybe bad, and that never the twain shall meet. 
So what do we do? I mean, if that problem is so basic, so endemic to the game that we love, do we have to stop playing the game? I don't think that's the answer. Uh, I think that, in fact, many of the latest generation of gamers have started to take very creative and thoughtful approaches to the problems of race and colonialism in D&D. So the very first thing that I would suggest we do is encourage diversity in writers and in players. Look around the table and ask yourself if it's possible that your table has a bit of a race problem. Now, maybe you live in an area that's not culturally diverse enough to accommodate a very diverse table. You can still read and use resources that were written by black, indigenous, people of color, uh, queer writers. There's a lot out there that wasn't there even 10 years ago. So the first thing that we can do is is encourage diversity in our own hobby and our own world. Because the perspectives that we get from those diverse writers will help us understand these real-world issues better and will make the game itself less problematic. The other thing you could do is talk to your fellow players, or if you're the DM, talk to all the players about portrayals of race and colonization. Ask them if they've thought about it, whether it's relevant in the game that we're playing. Some tables are fine, you know? And here's the thing about D&D, guys. It's not a mass medium. It's not like the game that you play at your table is being broadcast the way an HBO show would do, you know, or something on Netflix, uh, or even a play. It doesn't reach a mass audience. It's the game that you want to play. So if you talk to the other members of your gaming group and they all agree that issues of colonialism are simply not a concern for them, and they're happy playing the way they've been playing all along, that's not a crime. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But maintain communication anyway, because people's attitudes change, and new players come and go. And, and that might mean that the dynamic needs to change as well. Even if everyone is okay at the table, some players may be very grateful to have their assumptions checked in a safe place, because we often get defensive when our assumptions about stuff like race get confronted. That's because it usually happens in a pretty public environment. But if it happens at home or amongst friends, it's usually easier for people to step away and go, oh, maybe I am making some unwarranted assumptions here. Maybe I could write or play this game in ways that don't support or uh, encourage these harmful tropes, these harmful stereotypes. Finally, I think that it's important for anyone who plays the game to read up on history. History is an amazing source of inspiration. There's no denying that a lot of what we enjoy in D&D comes right out of history, or it comes through fantasy books, and those fantasy authors were inspired by history. So learn more. And again, if all of this stuff about residential schools and Canada's harmful history of cultural genocide, if that's all brand new stuff to you, I really I encourage you to read up about it if for no other reason than because it can make you a more informed player and a more informed human. But at the same time, I want to warn us that history is not just the past. So reading about the history of residential schools, for instance, is reading about history that ended as recently as 1998. So you may not have been alive in 1998, 
but you know an awful lot of people who were. So the raw materials that we use for the fun, escapist stories we play can also be real triggers for trauma. And I think that it's important to remember that as you're incorporating history into your games, that these are still extremely relevant ideas to a lot of people who are alive today. And consider the implications of that. Even if there are no First Nations gamers at your table, what does it mean for you to be taking a terrible, painful history and turning it into something that's meant to be fun? I think that we don't want to do that. I don't think that any self-respecting player or DM thinks that's a good idea when it's framed that way. So read up on history, but then be selective and thoughtful and compassionate about how you incorporate that into the games that you play. Um, last thing I'll do very briefly is talk about Ravenloft and colonialism. Uh, I've already talked a little bit about the problems surrounding the Vistani, uh, which is a rare example of an actual race within D&D, but they're handled terribly uh, in all of the published materials. They are stereotyped uh, a great deal. And that comes from a tradition of stereotyping and um, painting the Romani in a terrible light. That's a very long European tradition. Um, otherwise, there's not a lot about race that's on the surface of the Curse of Strahd. Um, but I think it's worth noting that Strahd himself is a colonizer. Um, the indigenous Barovians, uh, whom we see mostly as white i.e. European villagers, were conquered by Strahd and his armies centuries ago. And I think that for DMs or even players who want to uh, get into the Curse of Strahd or the Ravenloft setting in general, that's really worth remembering. Uh, I think it's worth exploring the idea that Strahd is not just an outsider because, you know, he's a vampire, um, but because he is the lord of a domain that he did not actually inherit. He conquered it. He took it by force. And when Strahd says, I am the ancient, I am the land, he is rewriting history. That's worth considering. For DMs, for players, how can you make things right again in Barovia? Does it just mean killing Strahd? Or is there something that needs to be done to make reparations or to convince the Barovians that they are the true masters of their own land? I'm not sure how much of that is going to surface in the game that I'm running. It's difficult to tell at this point, but I'm open to those ideas, and I'm going to keep reading and keep considering where I fit in the big story, the story writ large of colonialism and cultural genocide, and then make sure that I bring that to the game in as sensitive a way as I can. And I hope you do the same. The last thing that I want to say, apart from thank you for listening, is that if you are Indigenous and you find yourself in crisis, or if this recording has engendered uh, some crisis within you, um, help is out there. Uh, there is a First Nations and Inuit help line in Canada, 1-855-242-3310. Uh, you can call at any time, toll-free. And other resources exist as well. I encourage you to seek them out. And as I say in a somewhat playful way uh, to sign off most of my podcasts. I'll say it again now uh, in as serious a tone as I can. Uh, stay strong and shine bright. Um, be your true selves and do not let anyone 
make you feel ashamed for that. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Strawcast is produced by Slack and Slash Productions out of Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, also known as Unamagi, the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. It's based on The Curse of Strahd Revamped, published by Wizards of the Coast, as well as The Curse of Strahd Legendary Edition, published by Beetle and Grimms. But the participants are not affiliated with either company, and we do not seek to profit off this podcast. You can get in touch with us and find more of our podcasts at slackandslashpod.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And you can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, you name it. Be sure to leave a review if you like what we do. Until next time, be brave and shine bright. Shine bright.